Content warning. The following program may contain descriptions of violence and or sexual assault that may be upsetting to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. The upper left corner of the United States is full of stunning scenery. Beautiful mountains, raging rivers, breathtaking valleys, and so much more. But the Pacific Northwest is also known for something more sinister. This beautiful land also seems to be a breeding ground for serial killers and others who perform heinous acts. I was born and raised in the Pacific Northwest, and I've had a fascination with true crime since childhood. I'm here to tell you the true crime stories of the PNW. Grab your sweater and a cup of coffee. I'm your host, Emily, and this is The Upper Left Corner. States. San Diego, Tijuana, Salt Lake City, Utah, Cleveland, Ohio, Edmond, Washington, Fort Wayne, Indiana. There are potential victims wherever Israel keys traveled. Do you believe that this weapon somewhere in the United States may have been used to kill someone? It's possible. I have plans for that. <laughs> we know that there are families out there whose loved ones died at the hands of Israel keys. Right now we're just trying to find them. This week, I will be telling you the story of serial killer Israel Keys. The trailer you just heard was from an episode of 48 Hours that aired last year, in which Israel Keys discusses his crimes with the FBI. And you can find the link to the sneak peek of that episode on YouTube by visiting the show notes on this episode. First off, we are going to profile a PNW town that plays a role in this story. Let's get more familiar with Nia Bay, Washington. Nia Bay, Washington is a small town on the Macaw Reservation, located on the Washington Peninsula. It sits across the Strait of Juan de Fuca from British Columbia and has a radius of about 2.4 miles. Nia Bay is a popular fishing destination, especially in the summer. The Macaw Museum also draws visitors in with their exhibits, including artifacts from a Macaw village that was partially buried in a mudslide around 1750. According to the 2010 census, Nia Bay has a population of 865 people, and 77% of the population is Native American. The United States Coast Guard has a base in Nia Bay. The purpose of this base is mainly search and rescue and environmental protection. In order to prevent disabled ships and barges from grounding and causing possible oil spills in the western strait of Juan de Fuca or off the outer coast, the state funded an emergency response tug stationed at Nia Bay. It has saved 41 vessels since its introduction in 1999. 
Now that we know a little bit more about a PNW town, let's dive into the story. Israel Keys was born in Richmond, Utah on January 7, 1978, as the second child to Heidi and John Jeffrey Keys, who was a maintenance man. Israel had one older sister, four younger sisters, and three younger brothers. I'm not great at math, but that is nine children altogether. When he was around five years old, his family left the Mormon church to become what he called fundamentalist Christians. He described it as more of a militant sort of church and a little like the Amish. One of the specific churches the family has been linked to was called the Ark and supposedly was known for being racist, which is clearly a big red flag. But moving on. He and his siblings were homeschooled, and around the time they had converted religions, they had moved to Colville, Washington. There he was raised in a one-room cabin with no electricity or running water. During his childhood, Keyes demonstrated the hallmark psychopathic traits such as harming animals and starting fires. Also during his childhood, he became neighbors and friends with the family of Chevy Kehoe. He was a white supremacist and future family annihilator. As he grew older, Keyes renounced his Christian faith and began to dabble in Satanism. At this point, his father disowned him and he was kicked out of the family home. However, he still had a relationship with his mother and some of his siblings. Keyes acknowledged that he has known something was wrong with him since the age of 14, which was also the age that he began to carry a pistol everywhere he went. He is quoted as saying, I've known since I was 14 that there were things that I thought were normal and that were okay that nobody else seems to think that are normal and okay. So that's when I just started being a loner, I guess. I got in trouble a few times around that age. People found out about some of the stuff I did, like my parents and parents of other kids who would hang out with me, who would find out about some of the stuff I did, and that's when I just started doing stuff by myself pretty much exclusively. One such event that he recalls in one of his FBI interviews is that when he was around 14, he had warned his sister that if her cat annoyed him anymore, he would kill it. Well, it did, and in front of his siblings and neighbor kids, he took the cat into the woods, tied it to a tree, and shot the cat. However, the cat didn't die right away, and while everyone else was horrified, one poor kid was even throwing up, Israel was laughing. Word of the incident eventually made it back to his parents, and he was punished for it, and that's when he knew that he was different from the other kids and started to take measures to hide his behaviors. He also began breaking into and burglarizing homes, along with starting fires around this age. Keyes claims to have committed his first violent crime in the summer of 1997 or 98. He abducted a girl who was part of a hiking group that was tubing down the Deschutes River near Maupin, Oregon. His plan was to commit his first murder that day in an outhouse and dispose of the body down the outhouse because he knew the cleaning schedule and knew no one would be cleaning it out for nearly 30 days. However, his victim, who was believed to be between the ages of 14 and 18, did something extremely smart for the situation she was in and especially for her age. Even though he did sexually assault her, she talked to him the whole time. She was friendly and asked him questions like, why are you doing this? If you would have just asked me out, I would have said yes, and she complimented his looks. This created an emotional attachment for Keyes, and he decided to not go through with the murder. He put her back on her tube and sent her back down the river. It is believed that this girl never reported this incident to law enforcement. Following this incident, Keyes decided to join the military. In order to do so, he had to apply for a social security number and get a birth certificate. As his parents believed in being off the grid and his mother had home births, he had never received any of this paperwork. 
He served in the U.S. Army from 1998 through 2001 at Fort Lewis, Fort Hood, and in Egypt. Former Army friends have stated that Keyes was quiet and kept to himself, but on the weekends he would drink heavily and was into the music group The Insane Clown Posse. While on leave in May of 2001, he received a DUI in Thurston County, followed by a state charge of driving with a suspended license. In 2002, he was honorably discharged from the Army, and he moved to Nia Bay, where he met his girlfriend, and she gave birth to their daughter that same year. His girlfriend also had a son from a previous relationship that lived with them, and it is said that he cared deeply for both of the children and appeared to be a good dad to them both. By 2007, Keyes and his girlfriend had broken up, and he moved to Anchorage, Alaska. He started a construction company called Keyes Construction and moved in with his new girlfriend. This brings us to the story of Keyes' first confirmed victims. Bill and the Rain Courier were last seen alive in June 2011 in Essex, Vermont, a town with a population of around 19,000. Family members reported them missing the following day when neither showed up for work, which was extremely out of character for the couple. Bill was 49 years old and was an animal care technician at the University of Vermont, and his wife Lorraine was 55 years old and worked at Fletcher Allen Healthcare. Their family described them as good, kind people, and local police started searching for them immediately, but had absolutely no leads. They did say there was evidence in the home that the couple did not leave voluntarily, and their car was found abandoned about a mile from their house. Nearly 18 months passed before the family of Bill and Lorraine got answers. During an FBI interview, Israel Keyes explained how he had kidnapped and murdered Bill and Lorraine Courier. Keyes flew from Anchorage to Chicago on June 2, 2011. He rented a car and drove to Essex, Vermont, where he had buried a cache of murder supplies years earlier. On June 8, 2011, Keyes staked out a house in Essex by random. He said he chose it because it was a single-story house with an attached garage. He broke into the house while Bill and Lorraine were gone and decided they would be his victims after he found that they didn't have children or a dog living at the home. He cut their phone lines to see if it would trigger a home alarm system, which it did not. He broke in through a garage window that night wearing a headlamp and abducted them into their own car and drove them to an abandoned farmhouse where the murders took place. He then left their bodies in the farmhouse and he planned to come back to dispose of the bodies later. However, by chance, the home was demolished before he got back there and the bodies were never discovered. In a press conference, Chittenden County State Attorney T.J. Donovan said, It is clear from the facts of the case, though confronted with death, Bill and Lorraine showed extraordinary bravery and an extreme dedication and love for one another. They fought to the end. This murder was so horrific. I am leaving out a lot of the details, but this couple went through hell for absolutely no reason. They did nothing wrong, and they were chosen at random by a serial killer who lived in Alaska. And they lived in a small Vermont town. After the crime was committed, Keith spent multiple days driving around the East Coast in his rental car. He disposed of a weapon he had stolen from the Courier home and the gun he used to shoot Bill Courier in the Blake Falls Reservoir in New York. These weapons and a nearby cache were recovered by the FBI. He then drove back to Chicago where he caught a flight to San Francisco where he stayed for one night and returned to Anchorage on June 16, 2011. Now I'll tell you the story of Keyes' last victim. Samantha Tesla Koenig was born in Anchorage, Alaska on August 30, 1993. She loved animals, fishing, playing and writing music, photography, writing poetry, 
and playing Call of Duty with her boyfriend. She was very close with her father, of which she was his only child. She had several jobs throughout high school, including at Subway, but she had always wanted to get a job as a barista, which she successfully did at the beginning of 2012. On February 1, 2012, around 8 p.m., 18-year-old Samantha was closing up the coffee stand Common Grounds in Anchorage. Security footage captures Samantha handing out her last order of the day and backing away with her hands in the air as if she's being robbed. The lights go out and Israel Keys in a ski mask and hood appears to climb through the window. He zip-tied her hands and gagged her so she could not make a scene. When he was walking her back to his pickup, he saw a Canon camera on the ground and decided to pick it up. As he did this, Samantha broke the ties and made a run for it, but he was ultimately able to catch her and get her into his car at gunpoint. While they drove around, he told her everything would be okay because he was just going to ask for ransom and then let her go. Samantha told him that her family didn't have money and they wouldn't be able to pay, and Israel said they would just have to figure it out. At some point, Keyes realized that Samantha did not have her phone, so he went back to get it at the common grounds. He sent out a text from her phone to her boyfriend saying that she had a bad day and was leaving town for the weekend. He then took out the battery so they could not be tracked. Then he asked her where her debit card was. Samantha told Keys that she shared a bank account and debit card with her boyfriend and that the card was in his pickup. He then asked for the PIN number, which she did share with him. Then he took her to his house that he shared with his girlfriend and daughter and put Samantha in the shed. He turned up the music so that no one would be able to hear if she screamed and told her he had a police scanner and if she tried to escape, he would know. He then left to retrieve the debit card at Samantha's house. When he arrived and was in the pickup grabbing the debit card, he was confronted by her boyfriend who yelled at him and ran in the house to get help. Keys left and went to an ATM to test the PIN number that Samantha had given him and successfully withdrew cash. He then returned to the shed where he sexually assaulted and strangled Samantha. Keys left her in the shed and headed into his house in the middle of the night. He then packed for a two-week cruise that he was leaving for the following morning at 5 a.m. This cruise had been already planned ahead of the abduction. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. And now back to the story. On February 17, 2012, he arrived back home to Anchorage where he began writing a ransom note demanding money to be deposited into the account connected to Samantha's debit card. Okay, this part is something, as the kids say, has lived rent-free in my head since I first heard it. And even as a seasoned true crime consumer, this is rough. Samantha's body had frozen while he was away for the two weeks, so he thawed her out using a hairdryer. Keys needed to take a proof-of-life picture to go with the ransom note to prove that Samantha was alive. So mind you, this is 17 days after Samantha was murdered. He bought that day's newspaper, braided her hair, and sewed her eyes open and took a Polaroid picture. And you can see this picture. It came up when I was searching about this story. And I 10 out of 10 recommend you do not look it up. It's terrifying and so, so sad. He then photocopied the Polaroid picture and wrote his ransom letter on the back demanding $30,000. He placed the note in a specific place in a park and then texted her boyfriend and told him where he could find it. The note was recovered by the Anchorage Police Department. So then Keys began to dismember Samantha's body and dispose of her in Matanuska Lake, which was frozen over. He went ice fishing 
drilled a hole, and dropped her body down into the lake. Meanwhile, Samantha's father, James, deposited the funds into the account, thanks to members of the community who had rallied around the family and donated the money. Which really goes to show you how much Samantha was loved. They came up with that money so quickly, not knowing if it was a hoax, and they just really wanted her back. The police's plan was to attempt to catch the perpetrator by tracking the withdrawals. On February 29th, Keyes withdrew $500 from an Anchorage ATM, followed by $500 the following day from a different ATM. But by the time the police got there, he was gone. Then, on March 7th, Keyes withdrew $400 in Wilcox, Arizona. Next, he traveled to Lordsburg, New Mexico and took out $80. Two days later, he withdrew $480 in Humble, Texas, and the same amount the following day in Shepherd, Texas. By that point, they were able to get a vehicle description of a white Ford Focus. The FBI and Texas Rangers were able to begin to track the withdrawals as they occurred. On March 13th, nearly 3,200 miles from Anchorage, Keyes was pulled over in Lufkin, Texas for going three miles per hour over the speed limit. Samantha's phone was found in the car as well as the debit card. He was taken back to Alaska where the FBI got involved and that was when it became abundantly clear that Israel Keyes was a serial killer. Based on the FBI investigation following his arrest in March of 2012, Israel Keyes is believed to have committed multiple bank robberies, kidnappings, and murders all across the country between 2001 and 2012. During those times, Keyes lived in Washington State on the Macaw Reservation community of Nia Bay from 2001 to 2007, at which point he moved to Alaska. Once living in Alaska, he traveled the country extensively for work. During the FBI interviews, it was revealed that Keyes was meticulous in his planning and preparations of his crimes. The following is an FBI timeline that articulates the information provided by Keyes and known to law enforcement about Keyes' criminal activities. And just to be clear, the only reason he was talking was that he wanted to make a deal so that he wouldn't have to go to trial and put his girlfriend and daughter through that. He was bargaining for no trial and to the earliest execution date possible and was very interested in speaking about the crimes in which the state had the death penalty. Here is the timeline. In July of 2001, he was discharged from the Army, where he moved to Nia Bay, Washington, and committed his first homicide. The victim and location are unknown. Between 2001 and 2005, he admitted to murdering an unidentified couple in Washington State. He refused to tell law enforcement whether the couple was married or what the relationship status to one another was. They could have been friends, married, siblings, who even knows. He alluded that the bodies are buried next to a valley in Washington, but it is unclear if he abducted them from another state and brought them to Washington. He also admitted to moving the couple's car to put distance between where their vehicle was found and where the crime occurred. No bodies have ever been linked to this case. According to Josh Hallmark, the host of the True Crime BS podcast, who has thoroughly investigated the crimes and life of Keys has speculated that the couple could have been 16-year-old Cammie Volendroff and her 18-year-old boyfriend, Eugene Hyatt. They were vacationing with Eugene's grandparents at a condo in Depot Bay, Oregon, when they went out to look at the tide pools in November of 2001. They were never seen again. It is believed that they may have been swept out to sea, however, no bodies were ever recovered. And Keyes has stated one way he would cover a homicide is to make it look like the victims were involved in some sort of an accident. 
The FBI has not confirmed whether they have looked into this or not. In the summer of 2005 or 2006, Keyes admitted that he committed two murders separately. He claimed to have used the boat to dispose of at least one body in Crescent Lake in Washington. He used anchors to submerge the body in more than 100 feet of water. Neither of these victims were ever identified or found. Between October 31st and November 5th, 2008, Keyes flew to Seattle and then traveled to multiple states, including North Dakota and Arizona. On October 31st, he rented a car in Seattle and then flew from Seattle to Boston on November 2nd. He returned to Seattle and flew back to Anchorage on November 5th. He is believed to have engaged in criminal activity during this strange trip. On April 9th, 2009, Keyes admitted to abducting a female victim from an East Coast state and taking that person over several state lines to New York. The victim is buried in upstate New York, although they do not believe that the victim is buried on the property that Keyes owns in Constable, New York. The following day, he robbed Community Bank in Tupper Lake, New York. The FBI is relatively confident that the victim is a woman named Deborah Feldman, who vanished from her Hackensack, New Jersey home during the trip that Keyes took to the East Coast, but her body has never been recovered. Between July 9th through the 12th, 2010, Keyes flew from Anchorage to Sacramento, California, and traveled to Auburn, California. He rented a Black Ford Focus and drove approximately 280 miles over those three days. The FBI is also seeking information on this trip, and it is believed that he engaged in criminal activity on this one as well. In the spring of 2011, Keyes stated that he staked out a park in Anchorage, Alaska. He admitted he intended to shoot a couple sitting in a car, but his plans were disrupted by a police officer that pulled into the parking lot. He then set his sights on the officer and almost shot him instead, but then a second officer pulled in and he decided against it. Thank goodness. In May of 2011, Key staked out the North Fork Trailhead in Eagle River, Alaska, with the intention of abducting someone. He prepared a cache a short distance up the road that contained Drano and a shovel. Keyes denies going through with a murder at that time. Aside from the timeline that the FBI has come up with, Keyes did provide additional details of other homicides he had committed. He admitted to the abduction and murder of a female that he described as having pale skin with a wealthy grandmother and driving an older car at the time of her abduction. Keyes indicated that only one other body, aside from Koenig's, was ever recovered. In this homicide, Keyes reported that he moved the victim's body to a new location where it would appear as if the death was an accident. In this case, the authorities found the body and ruled it an accidental death. The FBI has not been able to connect a case to this story. He also admitted to robbing several banks during that time frame, two of which were confirmed by the FBI. Keyes would use the proceeds from the bank robberies to pay for his travel and supplies. You can view the FBI's timeline to see where they have tracked his travel over those years, and one of the most terrifying parts of his crimes was that he would travel somewhere and bury caches of murder supplies that he would use in later crimes, sometimes even years later. The FBI has recovered a few of the caches, including one in Eagle River, Alaska, and one near Blake Falls Reservoir in New York. The caches contained weapons, money, and items used to dispose of the victims. The most common one I read was Drano. It is believed that Keyes did not know any of his victims prior to their abductions. He frequented remote locations to search for victims such as parks, 
campgrounds, trailheads, and cemeteries. One of the craziest things about Keyes is that he had absolutely no victim profile. He has stated that his victims are both men and women and range in age from late teens to the elderly. Keyes stated he committed murder in less than 10 states, but did not disclose locations. He would sexually assault both his male and female victims. He did say that children were off limits, although the FBI has not ruled out that he didn't harm a child. So his terrifying MO, which is way different than what he did with Samantha, which is probably why he got caught, is that he would often find an abductive victim in one state, cross to a new state for the murder, and dispose of the body in a third state. He also admitted to burglarizing 20 to 30 homes throughout the country and talked about committing arson as a means to cover up a homicide. His attempts to make a deal to avoid trial had not been working. Unlike a lot of other serial killers, Keyes did not want the infamy that typically comes with being a serial killer. He did not want the attention on him, his girlfriend, or his daughter. So when these attempts to expedite the process were not going as fast as he wanted, Israel Keyes committed suicide in the Anchorage Correctional Complex on December 2, 2012 by self-inflicted wrist cuts and strangulation. He was 34 years old. He left a suicide note under his body that consisted of an ode to murder, but did not offer any other clues about other possible cases. Just this past year, the FBI released the drawings of 11 schools and one pentagram, which had been drawn in blood and found underneath Keyes' gel cell bed. To this day, the FBI believes his total number of victims is 11, but he is a person of interest in at least 36 cases. It is speculated that the 11 blood schools represent his victims. His funeral was held in Deer Park, Washington on December 9, 2012, and was only attended by his mother, four of his sisters, and their spouses. The pastor was quoted as saying during the service, He is not in a better place. He is in a place of eternal torment. And I could not agree more. But Keyes' reign of terror did not quite end there. He left behind a girlfriend who he had been with for several years, his ex-girlfriend who was the mother of his child, his daughter, and a stepson to deal with the aftermath of his life. I'm not going to share their names because they are victims in this too and deserve privacy. But sadly, I did find out that his stepson committed suicide at the age of 20 about six months after Keyes did. From what I have been able to find about the daughter, she seems to be doing well from outward appearances and is now a young adult. So obviously the story mentions a lot of PNW towns, but he also committed many crimes all over the country, and the FBI has even released timelines for his overseas travel because they believe he could have killed all around the world. He was such an anomaly as a serial killer. He was able to hold down jobs, have a family, maintain friendships. Everyone in his life was shocked. And that is the insane story of Israel Keese. off researching this case, the local wine I've been sipping to handle the story and also pandemic parenting is A to Z Wineworks Chardonnay that hails from north of the Willamette Valley in Newburgh, Oregon. Fresh and lively, America's best-selling unoaked Oregon Chardonnay is full of citrus, quince, and melon flavors, offering all of the delights of food-friendly, cool climate whites. And yes, I had to Google what a quince was. 
I picked up this bottle from my local Fred Meyer and it was tasty. Cheers and thank you for listening. This has been Upper Left Corner, a PNW true crime podcast. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a five-star rating and review and share it with a friend. I did not uncover any of the evidence I shared in the telling of the story today. All of the sources I used to write this episode are listed in the show notes. If you have a case suggestion or a PNW wine recommendation, please email me at upperleftpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.